0: Good morning. My name's Amy Foster and it's just one of the great privileges of my life to be a member of Women in the Word and to have spent a lot of years studying God's Word with you. Another great privilege is just to serve on your teaching team. So thank you for being here. I just was so encouraged when I looked around the room today and saw all of you leaning in around your tables and just enthusiastic and all I could think was, if all these women love the Lord and love His Word... And pursue him like this. What is he going to do through all these women? So I'm encouraged and inspired by you. Thanks for showing up and for being here. If you're at the West Campus, thanks for joining us. We love doing this with you. Um, Psalm 142 is what we're studying this week. And it's lessons from the cave. And you've, you've been looking at these psalms with us since January. And we've seen a number of psalms that fall under this category of Lament. Um, laments are these prayers that are cried out to God in desperate times and lots of the psalms are laments aren't they um, in, in all of the bible the cries to God in desperate times that's the second most repeated cry so that's why we keep seeing these laments but do you know what the first most frequently repeated cry to God is it's cries of praise cries of praise So I think this is interesting um, because most of the time, almost all the time, these cries of laments end in cries of praise. So we see this beautiful process of uh, entering God's presence presence and God changing us and moving our heart to a place where we pray. We've looked at a lot of laments, and as we've looked at them, I've kind of noticed two consistent themes, and honestly, one is kind of a bummer, and one is really hopeful. Um, I've noticed the idea that the opportunities to lament, they just keep coming, don't they? Um, different writers, different seasons, different experiences, but it sometimes seems like it's a lament after a lament after a lament. That's the bummer. Uh, The hopeful thing, though, is God can come into our laments. We can invite him into our laments, and he can turn the lament into a lesson. And that's why we're able to praise. And that's why so many of these um, prayers that start out lamenting and concerned and distressed end in praising God. And I think that's so hopeful because lessons are a good thing, aren't they? Do we have any teachers in the crowd, you know? We spent a lot of time uh, communicating to our students that learning lessons is actually a good thing. It's a refining thing, and it's the same for us. Lessons prepare us to be useful and productive in the future. Lessons connect our hearts more intimately with God. They help us understand him in a way we hadn't known before. But that's only true if we're diligent students and if we're willing to learn the lessons. So we're going to look at Psalm 142 and we're going to learn some of the lessons from the cave. And these are the lessons that David learned and we see him expressing these things as he cries out to God. We're going to start. I'm going to review a little Old Testament history with you. You probably know this, but I think it's real helpful. To understand um, what was going on when David was in this cave, Um, the children of Israel, we know God called them out to be his special nation, his special people, and he was going to bless them and he was going to enable them to be a blessing to the entire world. And through the Old Testament, we see God taking amazing care of them. He rescues them out of Egypt where they were slaves. He carries them into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey that he gives them for their possession. He gives them his law. He tells them, you are to worship me. You are to follow me. I am going to be your God. You are going to be my people. And I'm going to be your king. And I'm going to dwell among you. And they liked that for a while. But after a while, they did start looking around at the other nations around them. And they started recognizing that these other nations had kings. They had human kings. And they decided they wanted a king. And they started crying out for a king. And they didn't just want any old king. They wanted a king who looked good. They wanted a king who was handsome and powerful and strong. And they found a man named Saul who fit that description. And they begged for a king. And they wanted it to be Saul. So God allows them to have a king. But Saul was a flawed human man, and just like you and me, he erred, and he sinned, and he had a tendency to rely on his own plans and his own strength, and he made some pretty big mistakes. And ultimately, he got to the place where God said, enough. He is not fit. To lead my children. You can read about this in 1 Samuel if you're interested. Um, We read in Samuel that ultimately God rejects Saul's authority over the people, his leadership, and he sends Samuel, the prophet, out to identify God's chosen man to be the king over Israel. And he goes into Judah, not sure who he's looking for. He winds up at the home of Jesse. He looks at all of Jesse's strong, handsome sons, and he doesn't find the man that God is looking for. He says, are there any other sons? Finally, they say, well, there's David, the shepherd boy, out in the fields. And they bring David in, and Samuel identifies David is the man that God has chosen to lead Israel. First Samuel 13, verse 14, on your verse sheet, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you, Saul, have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So following the inspired instructions of God, Samuel anoints David, the shepherd boy, to be the next king of Israel. And the only problem with this whole picture is Saul is still wearing the crown. Saul is still the king and desiring to be the king. He's experiencing more and more unrest in his spirit. And David is sent in to assist him because David's a musician and they think this music will soothe and calm him. And it does. David is successful. He sort of earns a a relationship with Saul. He actually becomes Saul's armor bearer. He's very trusted by Saul at that point. If you know your Bible history, he goes out and he has this mighty victory over the giant Goliath. And then Saul keeps sending David out in these military battles. And David can't lose. He keeps having these mighty victories because God is with him. Wherever he goes, he's victorious. And Saul becomes insanely jealous. And Saul resolves to take David's life and to hunt him down and kill him. That's why David is hiding in a cave. He has to go into the hill country and hide. And he runs from Saul for the rest of Saul's life. So he learned some lessons during that time. Many of the laments in our psalms are written by David during this time when he is running around in the wilderness um, protecting his own life. On two occasions, the scriptures tell us David actually had an opportunity to kill Saul and to end it all. But David has a heart after God's own heart, and he won't do that. He repeatedly says, I won't raise my hand against God's anointed." So David doesn't take the opportunity to take things into his own hands. He leaves it to God. Um, God had come to him. He had pulled him out of a field where he was taking care of the sheep and anointed him king over Israel. God had covered him with his spirit. That was an amazing thing, and God had given him mighty victories. But David, just like each of us, still had some lessons to learn. He had some truths that he could learn about God that would equip him for the future work to be the spiritual and political leader of Israel. And some of those lessons David learned in these caves. Some of these lessons David learned in laments. So the beauty for us is we get to read Psalm 142 and we get to benefit from some of the lessons that David learned in the cave. Now we've talked about the fact that all these psalms, they're prayers. And prayers are simply words spoken to God. And that's what we see in Psalm 142. They're inspired words. But I want to remind you right off the bat, when we pray, we're doing one thing. We are inviting God into our circumstances. So when we pray in a lament or in a cave, we're inviting God into the cave with us and asking him to join us there. And that's just what David did. And through his prayer, we see God doesn't change. David has changed. David's heart becomes more intimately knit with the heart of God. David gets to see the character and the work of God in a way he had not experienced it before. And we can trust that David is better fitted for the work God has for him to do in the future because of this time in the cave. And the truth is, laments will come again and again and again for all of us. We might not be in a cave, but we will have our own hard circumstances, and that's the bummer. But the hopeful thing is, God has great lessons and great truths to teach us in those caves. So, David begins Psalm 142 with a great cry of faith, and he's going to end with a great cry of praise, because in this Psalm, he's going to encounter God and it's going to change everything. So, open your Bibles to Psalm 142, and we're going to start in verse 1. And this is the prayer of David from the cave With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. In those opening verses, we fully see and understand the problem. David is completely overwhelmed and completely alone and feeling total dread as he hides in the cave. Now, I want to tell you, I've had an opportunity to go to this part of Israel, kind of the Judean wilderness area, and see what this was like. And I'm just going to be frank with you. It was the most desert-like place I'd ever seen. I had no idea it was going to be like that. I don't do well with heat. I have never acclimated to Texas summer times. And I can honestly tell you this Texas girl had never known heat like I experienced there in this area where David was in hiding. We spent the morning down south. This is all kind of below Jerusalem alongside the Dead Sea. And it is hot and it is dry and it is miserable. And the sun beats down heat and the ground is all rock, white rock and white sand that reflects the heat right back at you. It's a desolate place. We went to this area where some of the caves were, and the heat was so oppressive. I'm kind of ashamed to tell you this. I had to sit down with some of the elderly people on my trip, (laughs) and I couldn't go up to where the cave was, not because I wasn't fit enough, but because it was too hot, and it was making me so sick. One of the fit men on our trip, the group came to a little unexpected pool of water, and this big, strong, fit man jumped in the water fully dressed because the heat was so oppressive he thought he was about to have a heat stroke. So have I accurately communicated it's hot. It's hot and it's miserable, and I cannot imagine that being the place where you have to hide out and try and take care of yourself and try to defend yourself against all the king's resources. So that's where David is, and in my mind, it's such a picture of a desolate region and a desolate landscape, and it matches his desolate Outlook. And some people read this and thought, oh, he's complaining. I thought, this doesn't sound like complaining to me. This sounds pretty accurate because it's desolate. Well, David demonstrates great faith from God from the very get-go by crying out to God, and that's the first lesson we learned from the cave. In our caves, we need to actively speak to God. That's the first thing we see him doing here, and we see a lot of repetition in those first four to eight lines. I cry out. I plead. I pour out. I tell. They're all showing activity, and it's activity of faith And all that activity is going directly to God and pursuing God. He's not relying on someone else to pray on his behalf. He's not letting someone else go for him. It's all, I, 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 go, plead, cry out. He's taking all of his troubles straight to God. Now, this makes me stop and think, troubles can lead us to all kinds of activity, can't they? But to cry out to God first. Obviously, that is the best activity. And it made me want to ask, what is the first thing we do when we experience trouble? Be honest. Who is the first person you turn to? What is the first activity you take? Do you call a friend? Do you call a spouse? Do you start formulating a plan on your own? Maybe you just immediately sink in despair. The truth is, wherever you go first, this is where you've placed your faith. Wherever you go first, that is where you, what you consider your refuge. So we see great faith in David right away that he first goes himself. He goes straight to God. He goes actively. And that's a great lesson from the cave. He describes this activity as cry out, plead, pour out my complaint, tell all my troubles. And I really loved those words, pour out my complaint, because it communicates dumping it all out, emptying every single bit of the problem and putting it there in the presence of God. And it reminded me of several other pouring out kind of experiences that we see in the Bible. It reminded me of that vial of expensive perfumed oil and the woman who doesn't hold any of it back, but she pours it out on her Savior's feet. It reminded me of Jesus on the cross pouring all of himself out not holding anything back. I think those words, pour out, are important. I think they're communicating to us, give it all to him, hold nothing back. There's no suggestion that David's taken this view of, God, I'm going to give you this most difficult, important piece, but the other parts over here I'm going to manage on my own. He doesn't. He gives it all to God and pours it all out. Now we have to stop and consider for what benefit, because God already knows. God is all-knowing. He already knows the details. So why is pouring it out of any benefit at all? The benefit isn't for God here. The benefit is for us. It's good for us to pour it all out. It's good for us to take this humble posture before God and to give every little bit of it to God because we can't manage any little bit of it on our own as well as God can. But we know God can. So again, it's an activity of faith to pour it all out. It's humble, it's dependent, and it's a cathartic experience that's good for us. Henry Nouwen says this, In prayer we admit that we don't know what God is doing. We become conditioned to wait for what we can never orchestrate on our own, in our own strength. That's exactly what this pouring out looks like. Pouring out is the beginning of the process of waiting on God, giving it to him and waiting for him to take it. Pouring it out and waiting on God is also the beginning of that process of entering God's loving arms and letting him hold you there while you wait. I thought of Isaiah 40:31 on your verse sheet. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Waiting on God is a great, uh, a great lesson for us. And it begins by going directly to God and pouring it all out for him. He says repeatedly where he's pouring it out. Look at those first couple lines. He says, to the Lord, to the Lord, before him, before him. That repetition is there for a reason. He's emphasizing that great faith looks like going straight to your great God and not going anywhere else. You go to the presence of God first, and you pour it all out. And again, it requires humility in your own ability, but it requires great confidence in God's ability. I also was struck by those opening words they are repeated twice, with my voice, with my voice I cry out loud. And the fact that it's said twice makes us stop and think, why is it there? Um, So I think it's important to recognize this was an audible prayer. It was out loud. There was no concern for who heard it, what it sounded like, what he looked like. He's praying out loud to God. He's communicating these thoughts out loud. So it's not one of these prayers that we pray silently in our hearts. As he persists in his prayer to God, we're going to see all through this psalm, It's an out loud prayer. He's speaking these words out loud. So I wanted to consider why is that emphasized over and over. We see about four times it's emphasized in this psalm that he's praying out loud. I think what we see in this first part, when David keeps saying, with my voice, with my voice, I think what we see is David's desire is to seek God with his entire soul, with his entire being. He wants to engage God with all that he has. So he's using his heart, he's using his mind, and he's using his body as these words come out his mouth. And he's saying this prayer out loud to God. I think it's an activity of faith that brings his whole body into the process so that he can engage fully from his soul. It reminded me a little bit, this idea of your soul communicating to God. It reminded me of Luke 1, that beautiful passage where Mary, the mother of Jesus, the angel has just come to her and told her that the Holy Spirit is going to allow her to conceive, and she's going to bear a child, and he's going to be the Son of God, the Messiah. And Mary prays this beautiful prayer in Luke chapter 1, and she says, My soul magnifies the Lord. She never says my words or my heart or my thoughts. It's her whole soul So I really think this out loud, with my voice, repeating with my voice, is this idea of with my whole soul I'm engaging God and crying out to him. David is using every means possible to connect and engage God here. So, have you tried praying with your voice? Um, you know the the quiet prayers that we pray in our hearts and our minds; those are beautiful and appropriate and good. But let's open our hearts to the possibility of praying out loud to God. To consider the possibility that it is might offer you a deeper opportunity to engage with God, a deeper opportunity to connect with God in your whole soul. And the truth is, something interesting happens when we speak the words out loud. I think it's very similar to when we worship through singing. And all through the Bible, we are encouraged to worship with singing. So think about it. If we were to open up our... our, We used to have hymnals. Sorry, I'm dating myself. If you were to just read the words of a hymn or praise music, that's going to affect you one way. But if you are going to stand up and sing those words, it's a totally different experience, isn't it? When you're singing the words, when you're speaking the words, they have a way of entering you, you own them, they become a part of you, and it's a much deeper expression. You know, I was noticing last week when Shelly taught us, she talked about this very same thing. She shared that as an unsaved teenager, she would go to Young Life meetings, and it was the song's. It was the worshiping songs, the singing out loud that moved her soul. Something in her soul, before she even had a relationship with God, something in her soul resonated to that process of singing the words out loud. So I think our great takeaway here is that it's a benefit to us when we engage God fully this way. And it's a great lesson we can learn from his experience, that there's something powerful and beneficial that comes from praying these prayers out loud. Psalm 3, verse 4 says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. We see that idea expressed again in Psalm 34, 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And another translation said, I will constantly speak aloud his praises. So we see that idea over and over and over again. And to be honest, when I think back about some of the hardest um, prayer moments in my life, the moments that literally brought me to my knees, like when you get the devastating phone call or that kind of thing, every single one of those prayers, they were out loud prayers. And it wasn't this thoughtful, deliberate process of how can I fully engage God. It was a desperate process of how do i engage god here and we try we always try to engage him fully by speaking out loud so that's a great takeaway for today you might consider that in your prayer life and then he goes on to say why is it so appropriate and so fitting to go straight to god and to go to god alone and to pour it all out and he gives us the answer there in verse 3 it says because even when my spirit faints within me god knows my way god knows my way That means even when you sink in despair, even when you are overwhelmed by your circumstances, God is not. God is not. And there's great comfort. God knows your way. God knows all. God has a great plan for David's future just like he has for us. He's already told David a little bit of what that future is going to be like. So David can rest on this confidence that God knows all. And that can give him the confidence that he needs to just keep going to God and pouring it out there. The Bible word for knowing it all is omniscient. Meaning God has knows all of it. We also know that he's omnipotent. He has all power. He's sovereign. He has all control. So here's what that means to me when I think about those characters of God. God knows exactly where we are. He knows exactly what's going to happen next. He's able to intervene whenever he chooses. He is not surprised by any of the things that surprise us. He is never sleeping. He is never slumbering. He is never unaware and nothing is too hard for God. Where else would you pour out all your troubles but to a God like that? The next thing we see, a great lesson from the cave, we see David willing to go straight to God and pour out this complaint, and he does it standing completely alone with God. So standing alone with God, it's a great lesson from the cave. He describes his lament in verse 3 and 4, meaning he describes the difficult circumstances he's experiencing. And he says, they've hidden a trap for me, and there's no one to help. In verse 4, when he says, look to my right and see, it's real important. We get all these references to the right hand in Scripture. The right hand... Usually when it's talking about God's right hand, it's always talking about God's protective nature, his protective character. When it's a person talking about at my right hand, your right hand is where your armor bearer would stand. Your right hand was where your protector, your guardian would stand. That's a military term that he's using, but it's also a great spiritual term. So when he says, look to my right, there's no one there, that means no one is defending me. No one is helping me. I am completely alone. Then he also goes on to say there is no refuge. There's no person and there's no refuge. Refuge means no shelter, no protection, no way to escape, no plan for escape. And when I read those words slowly over and over and over again, my heart ached for David. And I realized no person, no plan, how sad but God. God, no person, no plan, but God. So when David cries out in this place of total isolation, he's willing to stand alone with God, with no person there to help him and with no plan that he's formulated on his own. I think this is so important. Um, A few years ago, I I met a woman She was struggling as a single mom. I was a single mom at that time. And in all honesty, for the single moms out there, it's a cave experience. But it's also the place where you learn some of the most beautiful lessons about God and his tender care for you. And this woman was struggling. Um, We shared some things in common, uh, but what was interesting about her, she had this remarkable group of supporters from her church, and they gathered around her and loved her and served her well, but they completely took care of everything in her life. If something broke down in her home, she didn't call a repairman, she called them. They came over, they assessed the situation, they fixed it, or they called the repairman if her children had a school project she gave them the instructions they made the trip to the library they bought the art supplies they sat down with the kids and helped her do it all if there was a bill she was struggling to pay they came in they intervened they covered the expense for her and they were a remarkable support to her but she was incredibly dependent on her team of supporters After a few months, she called me one day very angry and very upset. We sat down and talked together. Her pastor had called her in with her team of supporters and explained that he had been praying about her and praying about all of them and that he was prayerfully asking the supporters to step back, to continue loving her and caring for her, but to step back and to let her walk alone with God. The pastor understood that she needed to be going to God leaning on God, relying on God, letting him be the refuge. Well, my friend was so angry at this suggestion. She spent an hour ranting and raving about this pastor who's telling her she needs to walk alone with God. And I sat listening to her thinking, oh, she doesn't know. She doesn't know that walking alone with God can be the most beautiful experience of her life. She thinks it's a punishment. She doesn't know this is an opportunity to learn how precious she is to God and how greatly he wants to care for her, how intimate this experience can be. And I could not convince her that it was going to be a good thing. My friend ultimately walked away from her church and her pastor and her band of supporters. She walked away from the great lesson of the cave because she refused to stand alone with God. In her mind, it was easier, it was more palatable, it was more comforting and reassuring to have real people standing there with her than to be standing alone with God. She could never come to understand that it was not a punishment. It was truly a good thing. I think we see David confident here that he can stand alone with God because it's a good thing. On your verse sheet, Lamentations 3, beginning in verse 25, Listen to the repetition of the word good here. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. It is good to stand alone with God. Psalm 16.8 says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. And remember what the right hand means, your protection, your defense. You have set him there as your right hand. Here's the truth. Here's the great lesson from the cave. Alone is never alone when you are God's. I'm going to say it again. Alone is never alone when you are God's. If you are feeling alone and you are God's, you are not alone And that's what you need to remember. Maybe there are no friends around you. Maybe there's no person you can see with human eyes. No person with skin on. Maybe there is no great plan of rescue. But you need to know God is there. Because you have invited him into the lament with you. When you go to him actively and pour out your need, you invite God to join you. One author described it as walking into a totally dark room. No light and you can see nothing. So you assume that you are alone. But if you will get quiet and sit and wait, you will slowly start to recognize the presence of something else. And you will know God's presence is there with you, even though you see nothing. Alone is not alone. If you are God's and we see David willing to stand alone with God, we can know with total confidence we're not alone because Jesus says in Matthew 28:20, 20, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And God said it in the Old Testament to Joshua, and it was repeated again in Hebrews 13, I will never leave you or forsake you. All right. let's pick back up in verse 5. We're going to see David persisting in this prayer. You're going to see him continue to actively go to God. But you're going to start seeing a progression in his prayer. And I think it's worth pointing out before we start reading here. Nothing has improved. He's still in the cave. There's still snares and traps out there. And there's still no one to help. But you're going to see this progression in his faith and his prayer in spite of the fact that the circumstances are exactly the same. Read with me in verse 5. I cry to you, O Lord. I say you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Okay, again, we're seeing an out loud loud prayer. He says, I cry and I say... So again, we're seeing this desire to engage his whole spirit, actively speaking to God. But he quickly shifts now to a new lesson from actively speaking to God. Now he starts actively speaking of God. Actively speaking of God. That's the next lesson. Um, When David speaks of God, everything starts changing. And this is when we really start seeing the progression of faith here I say, you are my refuge, you are my portion in the land of the living. The fact that he's saying it out loud again also suggests that this is a vow, this is a pledge. Some theologians said that in this moment, David's soul chooses God. His soul chooses faith, and he vows it, and he declares it out loud. And when your soul chooses God, it changes everything, even though the circumstances change don't necessarily change when we speak it out loud we're just like David it does become our vow it becomes our public testimony and we are held to it because it's binding in the Old Testament this was something that was considered um, with great gravity you were very cautious about your vows particularly a vow to God there are warnings in the Old Testament about not making a rash vow to God so we even have the same emphasis on vows today think about the things we say out loud publicly at a wedding ceremony or a baptism or a swearing-in. All these instances are perhaps as a witness in a courtroom. Speaking things out loud makes it your pledge and it makes it your vow. A vow is committing to a definite choice. So this is the moment when David is committing to a definite choice, and his choice is God, and he declares that choice. So he's not just speaking about God and God's character here. He's vowing that God's character is what he's claiming as his refuge. He's putting his faith in God, and his confidence is stirred. Before, when he spoke to God, he said there is no refuge. There is no refuge here. But now, as he speaks of God, he says, God is my refuge. The circumstances haven't changed, but his perspective has changed completely. He doesn't say God has provided a refuge. He recognizes God himself is my refuge. Deuteronomy 33:26 on your verse sheet says, There is none like God who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Psalm 27.5, He will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. That's God as the refuge. In Psalm 46.1, which we've, we've quoted multiple times these last few months, God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Before, when he spoke to God... He also said, there are no people, there are no resources, there is no help. But now when he speaks of God, he said, God is my portion. God is my portion. That's not a word we use often today, so I did a little research to help us understand what portion means. Your portion means all that has been measured out to you, all that has been allotted to you, all that's within your boundary lines, all that's been paid to you for your service, all that you have inherited so your portion, saying that God is my portion, is saying, God is all I have, all I want, all I need. God is the resource that we need. Psalm 73, 26 says, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And Lamentations 3.24 says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I hope in him. So now he's dealing with this reality of Before, there was no person and there was no plan, but now God is my refuge. God is my portion. He's bolstered. His confidence is bolstered by the nature of God and also by the reality that God is his. God is his to draw from and to rely upon. So bolstered with this confidence, his faith is strengthened, and he makes his request. And his request is very interesting. You'll look here beginning in verse 6. Ultimately, he's asking God to do What God alone can do. And that's another great lesson from the cave. He's letting God be God. He's not telling him how to solve the problem and get him out of the cave. He's letting God be God. Let's look carefully at his request. Beginning in verse 6. He begins with, attend to my cry. Okay, ladies, this is simple. It just means, hear me. Hear me. It's a cry for the presence of God. And that's a beautiful cry. It's not just seeking God's help or God's rescue. It's actually seeking God's face, seeking God's presence. It's an urgent cry simply to be in relationship with God. It reminded me of a beautiful song. So many of these psalms remind us of songs. A few years ago, this one was popular. It was by Nicole Nordeman. I'm going to read just a few lines and think about this desire to be in the presence of God, this cry for God to just hear me. It says, Oh, great God, be small enough to hear me now. Oh, great God, be close enough to feel you now. Oh, great God, be close to me. For tonight my heart is heavy, and I cannot keep from whispering this prayer. Are you there? Oh, great God, be small enough to hear me now. That's David's cry here, and it's a cry for the presence of God. And I am confident God loves this cry. God loves it when we ask for the things that he's already said he wants to give us. That's when our prayers are speaking God's words right back to him. God loves this cry because it's a cry for relationship. It's a plea to know God and to be known by God and to be in his presence. And that's exactly what God wants for us. God so often describes his care for us, the relationship he wants for us, and he compares it to that of a shepherd. Listen to Isaiah 40, verse 11. And he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead those that are with the young. That is a beautiful picture of the presence of God living in a relationship with a God who hears, a God who enters the cave with you, a God who condescends to be small enough to listen, a God who gives you his presence and his comfort. And I think we see a huge change in David here, because I think the desire of his heart is no longer escape from the difficulty. The desire of his heart is to be in the presence of God. It's God himself. We've said it before, loving God is better than loving the gifts he can bring. Loving God is better than loving the rescue he can bring. David just wants God here. The next thing he asks for, he says, deliver me, for they are too strong. At its core, this is a cry for the strength of God. He's cried out for the presence of God, and now he's crying out for the strength of God. And he confesses, they're too strong for me. They're too strong. I can't do it. But instead of asking for strong friends standing beside him or strong plans that will rescue him, he simply entrusts himself to the strength of God. That's really powerful, isn't it? When we unite ourselves with the God of the universe, when we wait and when we pray, he says his strength is available to us. His strength infuses us. And that's what David's asking for here. Isaiah 30:15 says, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. And Psalm 138, 3, On the day I called, you answered me. You increased strength within me. We see the truth that God is willing to come into our situation with us and infuse us with his strength. And that's what David's asking for. The last thing he asked for there is for God to set him free. But he says, set me free so I can praise you, so I can thank you. I believe what David is asking for here. It's a cry for the will of God simply for the will of God. David knows the purpose of his life is to glorify and praise God. And that's what he's asking God to do there. Let me fulfill my purpose. Let me praise you. And he even begins praising God. He begins the praising now while he's still in the cave. And he's anticipating the day when he will be surrounded by God's people. And he will be surrounded by God's goodness. And he starts praising right now. What I loved about this, I thought it was such a great application for us in our cave moments, he isn't telling God how to get him out of the mess. He never suggests a plan and scripts the solution to God. Instead, he goes to God and he entrusts himself to God's perfect will. And he just asks God to accomplish his will here. Psalm 57.2 says, I cry out to the God Most High, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. And we know, and David knew, God had a purpose for his life. He was going to be the political and the spiritual leader of Israel. And God would be God, and he would accomplish it in his own unique and creative way. So the lesson David has learned, how God does it doesn't matter. What matters most is that David stays with God. David relies on God. David entrusts himself to God's presence and God's strength and God's will. David lets God do what only God can do. And the ending of the psalm here is so interesting because it certainly appears that David is still in the cave. He doesn't write about any deliverance yet, but he doesn't write like someone who's alone either. He's joyful, he's expectant of this time to be surrounded by God's people. So what we've seen him do, we've seen him actively cry out to God and actively cry out about God. We've seen him rush into the presence of God first. We've seen him vow to trust God's character. We've seen him beg for an encounter with God. And he ends by anticipating the praise that's come. I think he can anticipate the praise because he has already received comfort. He has already received encouragement and strength. And it's come because he's had an encounter with God. Not because he was rescued from the cave. And when we have an encounter with God, here's the lesson we learn. God is enough. God is the refuge. God is the portion. God is with me. I am not alone. So most of us will not go to Israel and have to hide in a cave. Most of us will never be pursued by a mighty king but we will have our own cave experiences, won't we? Maybe it's an unfulfilling job where you're isolated or silenced or not having your skills used. Maybe it's bearing the responsibility of quietly caring for family members at home, away from the public eye. Maybe it's finding yourself in a life that looks nothing like the life you anticipated or hoped for. Maybe it's struggling struggling with a chronic illness. Cave experiences keep coming, but cave experiences are where we can learn lessons and develop a greater intimacy with God. Sometimes we're in the cave because someone has done something wrong. In those instances, we have a chance to learn forgiveness, patience, meekness, long-suffering, the submissive process of waiting on God. Those are great fruits in our lives, and they're fruits that don't come any easier way. They only come when we have to rely on God in a cave. The other kind of benefit we learn in these experiences, we can, we can grow in intimacy with God when he strips away all these other things. All these other things, the people and the resources and the plans that we rely on. When God takes those away, he has full access to our soul. He has total access to us. So sometimes he does strip us of self-sufficiency, of reliance on others, of resources, of pride. So he can have full access and be all he wants to be. So he can show us who he truly is. When we're stripped of the people and things we rely on, we get to learn the valuable lesson that God is enough. And he wants to be enough for you. I think he allows us these laments. So we will call out. So we will rush into his presence. And the truth is he's waiting to encounter us right there in our own caves. Our intimate relationship grows and evolves in the communication that happens in the cave. So we learn great lessons from David. We learn that the cry of faith brings us straight into the presence of God where we learn that he is our refuge and our resource. And the cry of faith shows us who God is And God is always enough, and that's the best lesson. You know, this week I've been anticipating Easter, and I've been looking at the experiences of Jesus in Holy Week, and I can't help but see these comparisons to David's time in the cave and Jesus' time approaching the cross and being on the cross. It was very much Jesus' own cave experience. He was isolated. There was no one to help. The powerful world was trying to kill him. And even in that desolate place, look what we see Jesus do. We see him persistently cry out to God. We see him persistently entrust himself to the presence and plan of God. If it's good enough for Jesus and it's good enough for David, these lessons are good enough for us. So we can do the same thing. We can go straight to the one who can help, and we can let him be God. It's a humble process but it's the process where we get ourselves out of the way and we get so tight with God that he infuses us with his strength and his comfort and his presence. We know that God had a great plan for David's life and we know that God has a great plan for our own lives too. If you have a relationship with God, if you are his, and that means you have accepted that the work that Jesus did on the cross was on your behalf to pay for your sins, and you have chosen to be his and be his forever, then God has a plan for your life. And his plan is that you would have a heart after God's own heart like David's. And his plan is that you would live in this life like a priest blessing the world. First Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's God's plan for your life. You're to live in a way that points everyone and everything to God who is enough. The time spent in the caves, even though they're bummers, they're full of hope because they're the lessons and the truths that we need to learn so that we can live as priests. And that's what God wants for all of us. That's my hope for you. Let's close in prayer. God, you are good and awesome and mighty and it's hard to imagine that you condescend to hear us to see us, to know us but your word promises that you do and we're grateful so my prayer is that our faith would be strengthened and that in all of our difficulties we would act like David and rush to your presence and pour out our problems and our needs before you my heart is heavy today for the ladies who are in their own cave experiences I'm just asking you to strengthen their faith, asking you to strengthen them so that they can stand alone with you, so that they can cry out about you, so that they can vow to choose you and place their trust in you and that you will be found, the refuge, the portion, the God who is more than enough. We praise you. We thank you. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.